Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. In Matthew 10, verse 23, Jesus says, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does Jesus mean when he refers to the coming of the Son of Man? Scholars debate the interpretation of this reference, and in this episode, Cameron and I will weigh three of the major theories and try to figure out which of the alternatives is most compelling. Well, Pastor Mark, you preached a sermon this last Sunday and raised an interesting question that I'd like to return to. We were in Matthew chapter 10, and looking at Jesus' words to his disciples, kind of sending them out to share the gospel of the kingdom with others. And we got to this interesting point where he's talking about the ways they might be persecuted as they're spreading around the region. And he says this kind of interesting line. This is Matthew 10, 23. Jesus says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And I think anyone listening to that verse might just should pause and say, wait, what? What's going on there? So you mentioned in your sermon, we could unpack this a little bit more, and I'd like to do that today. So What's going on here? What do we need to think about? Was Jesus wrong about this or what are we missing? Yeah, it's a great question because we are are going to have to do a little bit of speculation here in order to nail this down because this is one of those references that we can't be absolutely certain what exactly Jesus means by this. And so we have to do some interpretation. Mm -hmm. So in the sermon, I gave what I think is a compelling explanation of this verse, but I don't even want to talk about that yet. I want to save that so that we can spend a little bit of time talking about what is the problem that Mm -hmm. this presents and then thinking through some of the possible explanations for it. And I really want to underscore that word explanation because what we're doing here is we're, we're not analyzing this and thinking it through in such a way that we can say at the end of it, absolutely, this is what Jesus means, and he possibly mean anything else. What we're trying to do here is to take a statement of Jesus's that we can't say for certain what it means and come up with a compelling and plausible explanation that fits with the evidence that we have in the rest of Matthew's gospel. So that's kind of the task. But maybe it would be helpful before attempting to solve this to talk a little bit about the nature of the problem. So for context, in Matthew 10, we are in the missionary discourse. And like all of the discourses of Matthew, This is material that Jesus taught at various times in his ministry. And Matthew has compiled these sayings 
together into a series of discourses. And that's the way the book is structured. So we have five big discourses, and then there's narrative that kind of bookends those things. So in this discourse, you can see there's a thematic organization here. So we're hearing about rejection of the message of the kingdom, and now we're hearing about persecution. And so we're getting a series of things that Jesus says about persecution. Interestingly, some of what he says is very limited to the original context. So he told us in what we saw at the beginning in the first section of the discourse that this mission of the apostles would be limited only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mm -hmm. And yet now we see in this second section that you will be bearing witness before them and the Gentiles. So there's at least a sense that, that the scope is opening up a little bit and the events that Jesus has in mind are not just events taking place at this moment when the 12 are being sent out, but also things that will happen during what we might think of as like the apostolic era, uh, things that might come to pass, for example, in the book of Acts. A lot of this stuff sounds like book of Acts stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So that gives a little bit of context here. So the time frame that we're looking at is somewhat elastic, and yet... <laughs> When we get to verse 23, as he said, he tells them to flee one town when they're persecuted, flee to the next. And it seems as if he's saying, like, as you're doing this, it won't be long before the Son of Man returns, that the Son of Man's going to come. So, like, don't be discouraged that you have to flee from one town to another. Like, this is only going to last for a season, and it's not going to be long because you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel. So you won't even have made it through Israel before the Son of Man comes. So that really asks the question, like, what does it mean, yeah. uh, this coming of the Son of Man? right? And that's the, the mystery. That, that's the thing we have to nail down. So I remember reading this passage in high school, and like I did with all passages back then, I just thought it was speaking directly to my situation always, you know, and I think it's sometimes true, but not always, or, or I was missing the context. And I remember thinking something like, oh, Jesus is telling me that I'm going to be persecuted for following him. And like the disciples, I could be dragged before <laughs> political rulers or, um, get into fights with my family or something like that. And then at the end here, I think the interpretation was something like, well, this must be applying to all Christians then. So not just the disciples, not just me clearly, but all Christians around the world. And when Jesus says you won't reach all of the towns of Israel, he must be meaning the world. And that the missionary, you know, missionaries won't reach the end of the world before the Son of Man comes. And I think that was satisfactory for me for some reason. But right. that's, you know, that's quite the stretch. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so that's a pretty common thing. And I don't, I don't think it's, it's invalid at all to apply what Jesus is saying to our circumstances. Yeah. And I think the key is to remember that what we're doing there is applying, right? That we're doing application. It's not the immediate yeah. context. And so we have to be careful about you know, personalizing it in such a way that 
that the difficulties vanish, right? It's easy to say, well, he can't have meant all the towns in Israel. Literally, he must mean something else mm-hmm. and, and just sort of resolve the, the difficulty with, with ease. Yeah. And yeah, I, I grew up hearing similar things. I, I know that um, there were people who believed that once the last sort of unreached people group in the world had finally gotten the gospel, that that would be the moment when Christ returned. And so I think, you know, that's probably a a way of thinking that is inspired by passages like this and and having to to think about what they might mean. You could also go in the other direction, though, and, and read this very literally, that Jesus is saying, I'm sending the 12 out. You're going to go through the land of Israel and you're going to meet a lot of opposition. But don't be too concerned because give me, you know, seven or eight days. I'll give you a head start. But once things get really bad, I'm going to swing around and, and collect you guys. And, and that's what he means by yeah. the Son of Man will come. Right. So it could just be, you know, I, I'm throwing you in the deep end and it's going to feel like you're going to drown, but don't worry. I'm going to hop in the water and, and pull you right out. Something like that. Uh, again, not what this passage is clearly saying, but a way that you could interpret it in order to resolve the difficulty easily. Yeah. I mean, and in a sense, don't you think that's, I mean, this is speculative, but you could forgive the disciples for thinking that very thing. You know, who knows what's going on in their heads, but if that was me, maybe that's what I would be thinking. Like, oh, okay. Right, right. Absolutely. I think the only, I don't know, like, like reservation I would have is that the disciples are not hearing this as a text. You know, they're, they're not receiving this in a scroll. Like they're having a conversation with Jesus and they're able to talk to him about these things. And, and uh, you know, my assumption is always that they probably have more information than what ends up written down in moments like this. You know, yeah. Jesus might have given them more um, data. They might even have been able to ask questions. <laughs> and, and the result of the Q&A is not preserved for us, you know. Right. So, so yeah. we just don't know True. about that. But, but I think... There is a clue for us in the wording that he uses that that we have to pay attention to. Like he doesn't say, uh, don't worry, before much time passes, I'm going to swing back around and get you. He he uses this phrase, before the Son of Man comes. Now, the idea of coming is important because we've been talking about the coming of the kingdom, right? The whole message that the apostles are being sent out to proclaim is that the kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom has come. And so when you hear language like this, I think you've got to read it with some kind of eschatological significance that the coming of the son of man has got to be something similar to perhaps almost synonymous with the coming of the kingdom. If we make that connection, that also helps us a little bit, because when we talk about the kingdom, we're already well-versed in the aspect of the kingdom that, that we sum up in, in the term already, not yet. You know, that, that there's a, a sense in which the kingdom is here and present, but there's also a sense in which the kingdom is not yet here in fullness, 
that there is more to come. So the kingdom is already established. It's not yet here in fullness, something like that. And so when we talk about eschatology or in times, we're, we're talking about the not yet stuff, the things that haven't happened uh, at this point. And so I think that clearly the, the proclaiming of the kingdom, the gospel message that the apostles are, are, are sent out to give, that's a already message. Right? This is already a reality. And they've, they've been sent out to go and basically say, it's here. But now, a not yet reality is being alluded to. And I think it's important for whatever explanation that we end up with to take that part seriously. It can't just be as simple as Jesus is laying out his itinerary and he's going to join them you know, after the fact. And I don't think we can get rid of the dilemma by just making it, you know, wholly sort of generic and, and future that, that the towns of Israel is just a way of referring to the world. So mm-hmm. I think we've got to have some kind of future events that takes place before the towns of Israel, however we understand those, are all fully reached. So this mission to the lost sheep of Israel, that's a historic moment in redemptive history. As a beginning in Matthew 10, it's going to have an end at some point. And it seems to me that Jesus is telling us something's going to happen before the end of that. And it's this thing that he describes as the coming of the Son of Man. So, so far, so good. I think I'm following, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) It's it's important, I think, just to lay it out step by step, though, because I I want to show the homework, right? I I want people to see that we're not... We're not glossing over possibilities just because we don't want to entertain them, that we, we do want to be careful and, and yeah. interpret rightly. So let's start with what I think is, is the, the most obvious explanation to a first-time reader of this text, but an unthinkable explanation for most believers which is the simple explanation that Jesus thinks that this eschatological event, his return, is going to take place before the apostles have completed the mission he's giving them. But sadly, Jesus is wrong. That he thinks that the second coming, the fullness of the kingdom, all of that is going to appear much sooner than it actually will. So if we assume that that's what's going on here, does that solve the problem? Yes. I think that explains it. Like Jesus is telling them that this thing is going to happen. He's doing it in good faith. He's just wrong. Which raises a new problem. <laughs> right. So, so that it raises a question. So I think the, the, the problem of what do you do with Jesus getting things wrong is one that you could gloss, let's say, at least two different ways, depending on your assumptions. Right? So I think a lot of modern biblical critics writing about this passage would say, well, it is obvious that Jesus gets this one wrong. And if you ask, how is it possible that he gets it wrong? 
the answer is more or less, well, he's just a man, human beings err. Of course, he got a lot of stuff wrong. You know, that's just how it is. In other words, uh, essentially, a lot of modern commenters don't have a very strong commitment to the divinity of Christ mm-hmm. and would not have much difficulty in saying, well, he, he made a lot of mistakes. Um, many of them, no doubt, were left out of the Bible. This one just slipped in somehow or, mm-hmm. you know, what have you. So that's one possibility. And I'm making it sound a little silly, but obviously people who think this way do it in, um, you know, robust, intellectually defensible ways. They're not stupid people. There's rationalizations and justifications and that sort of thing. Um, You could also have a pious explanation, though, rooted in the self-emptying of Jesus, the Son, in the Incarnation, that Jesus himself says that no one knows when this return will take place. He alludes more than once to things that he does not know. The idea being that he has willfully limited his knowledge while on this earth. And there's something mysterious about that, but I don't have to deny his divinity in order to explain this statement that way. It could be that because he limited himself, Jesus was wrong about the timing of these eschatological events, but not because he is not who he claims to be, simply because part of the incarnation involved that that limitation. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's usually the specific limitation that people point to when they talk about how he emptied himself out because he mentions multiple times throughout the gospels. I don't know, you know, only the father knows when the end will come. Right. Sort of a thing. Right. So I think here, like, I guess one point we could make is this is a good reason not to dismiss like every person who interprets a passage like this, this way, um, not to assume that the only way that you could see it, as sort of a, a, a an error of Jesus is by denying his divinity, mm-hmm. right? That that I think you you always want to extend a judgment of charity and and at least ask questions and try to understand better uh, what the line of thought is. In this case, though, although sure you can make an argument about Jesus's self limiting that he himself professes not to know certain things, however. In this case, when we're talking about the return of Christ, um, Jesus does make statements elsewhere that suggest some knowledge. He expresses there are certain things that will happen first, that there are certain things that that will be portents, uh, almost, you might say, criteria that, that have to be met or accomplished in advance. And so if we're going to read scripture in the larger context, even within Matthew's gospel, I don't think it makes sense to say that Jesus simply doesn't understand the timing of what he's talking about or gets it wrong. 
because, as you say, Jesus will talk about uh, other things that have to happen, uh, including, for example, his suffering and death. Uh, he will teach openly about that. That's something that needs to happen before this coming of the Son of Man. Also, outreach to the Gentiles, alluded to briefly here in this text, but we'll get more reference to that as well, and, and reference to it in relation, again, to this idea of this future. And so I think, given that context, I don't find this explanation as compelling as it seems at face value. Now, obviously, there are ways to sort of get around those objections. Um, I think it was Albert Schweitzer who sort of rationalized all of this so that, uh, you know, Jesus thinks that the apostles, before they complete this mission, you know, his, his second coming will happen, but he's cruelly disappointed and it's a sort of dark turn doesn't want to talk to the crowds anymore, just kind of talk to the inner circle, and now he becomes focused on suffering and the need for the cross, which he hadn't really understood before, <laughs> you know, something like that. So the difficulty with those kinds of rationalizations, honestly, is that at this point you're doing what a novelist does in trying to take a historic narrative and imagine psychologically how to make the disparate pieces fit. So if your theory introduces problems, inconsistencies, or tensions with the rest of the text, coming up with some sort of psychological character arc to make sense of it all, um, that's fiction writing. That's not really scholarship. And so, again, I'm not saying there's no way to rationalize these tensions. I'm just saying I don't find that compelling given the the full scope of what Matthew says. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the first view. Yeah. So the second view, and I think much more compelling view, focuses on Jesus's death and resurrection. So again, we're talking about a historic event that's going to take place within the scope of this mission to the nation of Israel. Chronologically speaking, Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, I think, fit the bill on that because the outreach to Israel is still ongoing at that point. I also think you can make a good case for why this might be described as the coming of the Son of Man because in Christ's crucifixion, he does the work of the priest-king that was foretold, and in his resurrection, he receives the glorification, the, the crowning with many crowns, you might think, mm. that marks him as the, the son of man in fullness, let's say. So it does make sense to me that Jesus might refer to the, those events in this way, and that he's telling them, you know, there will be this season of difficulty and persecution, but even in the midst of that, this work of this apotheosis, this, this culmination of fullness 
will take place. That too sort of reminds me of what you were saying earlier of the already and the not yet. Because Jesus standing before them talking was obviously there, present, real, the son of man very much. But what you're saying is that in his death and specifically his resurrection, the son of man comes in a new kind of fullness. Yeah, I, th- I think like the son of man is a title. And so in the same way that you might talk about the coming of the king uh, and imagine that the coming of the king is not exactly like the moment that the guy who will be crowned shows up. It's the moment of the coronation, something like that, that, that this is the logic of the expression that the son of man in some sense has come, right? The, The Jesus is here, but he sort of becomes fully the, the embodiment of that title as he accomplishes the work and is glorified for it, something like that. So as I say, I I think that is a compelling explanation. Um, I don't think it does away with all of the difficulties or tensions. and, And obviously with any interpretation, you hold it somewhat lightly, but a person who says, I think that's what Jesus is referring to is in my view, standing on pretty solid ground. That's informed speculation. (laughs) And, uh, and it doesn't do violence to the rest of the text, except in one little way. There's one little, no, um, unresolved tension as I think about this, because what Matthew 10 does is begin with the immediate context of the apostles being sent out, but then it sort of telescopes forward a little bit. As I said earlier, it seems as if some of the stuff being talked about is stuff that doesn't happen right now as the 12 are sent out, but but will happen during the apostolic era, it's going to happen in the book of Acts, for example. We're going to see more persecution, more flogging, you know, more uh, people being dragged before the officials of the synagogue and, and before Gentile governors and things like that. You know, it almost sounds like a summary of the book of Acts in some ways. So the challenge is... When Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, he describes it as something that happens before this era is over. But also, I I think the context suggests not like in the middle of the era, but towards the end of it. Mm -hmm. That there's there's a a sort of break point here between one epoch and the next. So the kind of event that the coming of the Son of Man must be is like a transitional thing that maybe marks the end of one era and the beginning of another. I think you could say that that's true for Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, definitely. And yet, because of the fact that that so much happens after that in the book of Acts that's referred to here, I'm inclined to ask, is there another event that takes place 
closer to the end of the apostolic era, closer to the end of that, that mission. Mm-hmm. When you start asking questions like that, of course, there is something that, that fits that description. And I suspect that it would have been an obvious answer to a lot of people in the first century. So I'm speaking, of course, of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year AD 70. This was done by the Romans, but is an event that is widely interpreted as judgment. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of the coming of the Son of Man, we should think specifically, according to this theory, of a coming in judgment. Um, he will come to judge the living and the dead. You know, there, there's that sense of coming here. And the destruction of the temple has a special significance because it marks the end of the old covenant economy. Right? There's been this Levitical priesthood, this sacrificial system. This was the way that sin was atoned for under the terms of that old order. The author of Hebrews talks about that old order as a thing that is passing away because something newer and better has come. Ultimately, when that temple is destroyed, that old order passes away forever. Those sacrifices ended and have not been resumed. That ended in that moment. And afterwards... Everything changed. So, according to this interpretation, Jesus is referring to this coming in judgment, and it is specifically the ending of the Old Testament or Old Covenant economy as the New Covenant economy, as the new life of the kingdom takes over, as one epic ends and another epoch begins. There's continuity, of course, but there's also discontinuity, and this is kind of an emphasis on the discontinuity. So, as I said, I find the second explanation compelling. Honestly, I find this third one more compelling. That's why in the sermon, the the brief time that I gave this, that's the interpretation that I suggested seems to me to fit best with these circumstances. Now, again, I want to emphasize fit best, not necessarily fit perfectly, not necessarily answers all the questions. And and now that we've gone through this, our our minds can be at rest. I'm not suggesting that. There are definitely things in scripture that we do not know for certain and cannot nail down with absolute certitude and have to just think about, reflect on, and speculate on. And I think ultimately this is one of those things, and that's okay. It's okay that there are things like this that we have to uh, take on faith, that, that we, we interpret as best we can. Mm-hmm. I think that this is probably the best interpretation, and I hope that by walking it through it, walking through it has given us a, a sense that we're Uh, making an effort to do justice to various ways of looking at it, and ultimately, most importantly, to do justice to the text that we actually have. 
I'd like to believe that whatever Matthew's gospel teaches, that's what we want to believe, even if it's not something that we would have imagined. We want to be led by what scripture actually says. In this case, I think this, well, I'm not going to go as far as I say that, like, this is what scripture clearly says. I think this fits with what we're told. And so I find it compelling. If you want to disagree, if you want to say, no, no, it's clearly explanation number two, that's great. Maybe you can think of some other explanation, and that's fine too. Yeah. But, um, but, but this, I think, really fits with the overall testimony of the New Testament. Great. So let's see if I can summarize these three views. So the first view was that essentially Jesus got it wrong, that he thought the Son of Man would be returning before his disciples reached all the towns of Israel, but alas, that didn't happen for various reasons why Jesus might have gotten that wrong. The second view is that the coming of the Son of Man is referring to his death and resurrection, where he comes in a new kind of fullness, and the Son of Man comes again before his disciples have reached all the towns of Israel. The third view is that this coming of the Son of Man is referring, in fact, to a different eschatological disjunctive event, the destruction of the temple, the Jewish temple, in AD 70 by the Romans. And you're saying this is kind of a, a judgment, an act of judgment on the old order and an introduction or this slow, gradual introduction of, of the new covenant. I think my, my one question about that last view, which I do find compelling, is who, who is the Son of Man in that case? Is, is, is it like the Son of Man through the Roman Empire, or is it still Jesus as the Son of Man executing a judgment from on high? Or, you know, in what sense is the Son of Man coming? It's a good question, yeah. I, I so, so, there are different ways of answering that, and, I, and they get us into somewhat murky eschatological water, right? Yeah. That that there are people who associate the destruction of Jerusalem with a kind of coming of Christ that is is almost a I don't know dress rehearsal for the for the second coming, <laughs> um, and and sort of picture it as as Jesus sort of I don't know coming down, you know, out of the clouds, but not touching down on earth and sort of stage directing the Romans as they do their work or something like that. Again, forgive the hyperbole, but uh, I don't think I would want to go anywhere close to that far. I think it's, it's safer within the context of Matthew 10 to think more in terms of the way in which uh, God throughout Scripture talks about executing His judgment through human agents. Mm-hmm. That you know we see in in the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament that nations are raised up by God and they act on His behalf, executing judgments of His. Right. So the exile, the fall of the southern kingdom and then eventually the northern kingdom or other way around, the northern and then eventually the southern, uh, these are represented in the Old Testament as judgments of God. 
not just foreign invasions, but they were foreign invasions. And so in a similar way, I think the actions of the Romans would be most naturally interpreted as a judgment from on high, but executed through the agency of the Romans. And, and that's like as far as I would go in doing that. And I, I, I think it, it's, again, according to that sort of viewpoint, a way of bringing to a close that old economy, right? That, that throughout the Old Testament, you see this tension um, throughout the New Testament, sorry, you see this tension of, of will I continue in Christ or will I lapse back into the religion of law and sacrifice that I grew up with, right? That's kind of the, the tension that you see in, in the epistle of the Hebrews. So I think here that conflict is finally ended. I know historically speaking, we look back and we often see it differently, right? Because we see continuity within Judaism, like Judaism continues and exists to this day. But the religion that Jesus grew up with, that the apostles grew up with, ends in a really significant way with the destruction of the temple. And what continues is different. And so, again, when you take those things into account, I think you can see, you know, how this might be interpreted that way. I like as well that it allows for the events of the book of Acts to take place. And like you were saying earlier, what Jesus is describing in Matthew 10 seems to be something like what Luke depicted in the book of Acts. So... And part of that is all of the amazing works of the Spirit, which, you know, some would say change, I guess, at the at, at that mark of the, the temple destruction. So this has all been very fascinating for me, and I have learned a lot. I did not, frankly, know so much of this before. So a great conversation, and uh, thanks for guiding us through these views. Oh, it's my pleasure to do it. I think one of the beauties of working through Matthew's gospel is the way that he brings us into questions like this and kind of forces us to put our thinking caps on and and uh and honestly this is just the beginning we'll we'll see a lot more of of this kind of difficulty that we have to navigate as we go forward Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.